man, choir. No pressure. You got some, com you got some competition there. Uh, that, was, that was fantastic. How can you not want to come to that? Um, good morning, uh, Woodside. Welcome for joining us. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, you're going to have to forgive me again. I have no voice. Um, but I have enough of a voice to preach God's word, and so I'm excited uh, to be able to do that. Um, so, so you're just going to have to, uh, to bear with me. Um, go ahead and be turning in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8, <clears throat> verses 31 through 38. Page 844 in your pew Bibles. 844. Um, before we begin, I want to bring, I bring greetings uh, from Joseph and Rosa. Um, they have a healthy little baby boy. Um, I got to go spend some time with him on Thursday. Um, there was a little bit of a scare, but, but God is very good. Uh, mom and baby are, are, are healthy and happy, um, and they're doing really well. Um, so they send their greetings. So be keeping in prayer. Um, you know, first the first week with a baby. Like, what in the world? Somebody gave me a baby. What, what do I do with this? Um, and so, it, but it's exciting and wonderful. So they're doing good. Um, so, so they're sorry they can't be here. But, but keep um, praying for them. Saturday we had a wonderful time. I think at the women's thing. I wasn't invited, but I hear that it went really well. Um, so, ladies, thank you for all your hard work um, and attendance. We're gonna keep um, increasingly doing stuff like that and keep uh, you know, growing closer together. So I think it was a really, a really good time there. So um, to our text. <clears throat> Last week, uh, we, we looked at the climax and end of the first act of Mark. Remember, two act, it's a two-act story. So we finished the first act when God opens the eyes of the disciples and reveals to them that Jesus is the Messiah. Now remember, that's what the whole first part of the book of Mark is about. It's about who Jesus is, the identity of Jesus as the Messiah. Now they've, they've got that part. They get it. So in our passage this morning... Jesus is going to affirm to him that, that yes, he is the Messiah, but, but that he's not anything like the Messiah that they expected. They get his identity, but they don't yet get what that identity entails, because they still have no idea what Jesus, as the Messiah, has come to do. Right? They get his identity, but they don't yet get his mission. Right? And that's what the entire second half of the book of Mark is about. First half, the identity of Jesus. Second half, the mission of Jesus. And like with the first act, Mark kind of spoils the surprise for us, right? He, he tells us the end of the story right away. Remember back to, to chapter 1, verse 1. Tells us that Jesus was the Messiah and the Son of God, right? So he tells us the end, but then he spends the next eight chapters kind of showing that to us and, and demonstrating that to us as well. Right, well, he does the exact same thing in our passage. The very first verse and the second act of the book, Mark spoils the story and ruins the ending. Right? He, he tells us right away what Jesus has come to do. And then he'll spend the next eight chapters showing us. So this morning, we're going to be introduced to the mission of the Messiah. We're going to break the passage down into two simple parts. We're going to look first at what he has come to do. And then we're going to look at what we are called to do in response. Or you could say first, we're going to look at his messiahship and then our correlating discipleship. Right? Messiahship and then discipleship. We will never understand the nature of our discipleship, what we are called to do, until we first understand the nature of his messiahship. Right? What Jesus has done for us. Right? So Mark chapter 8, verses 31 through 38 uh, follow along um, as I read. This is God's word. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. 
And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the Holy Angels. <clears throat> Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for your word. Um, we thank you for revealing yourself um, to us through it. We thank you for meeting us in your word. Um, and so, Father, right now I pray that you would, your, your spirit would um, come into this place and you would meet us here um, through this word, that you would apply this to our heart, that you would reveal to us Jesus Christ, um, your great Messiah, our great Savior, Father, that we would learn to love him um, better based on, on what you teach us here this morning. Father, I pray this time would be all about you and all about your son. And I pray that you would get all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so, <clears throat> sorry. Last time we saw Peter, he, he confessed Jesus as the Messiah, right? That was the climax. That was the highlight of the first time. Everything was building to that confession. And so the very next thing that happens is it says Jesus began to teach them, right? Because he hadn't yet taught them this. And verse 32 tells us that he taught them plainly. I mean, this was, you know, this was rare for Jesus. This is the only time that this is mentioned in the book of Mark because Jesus frequently spoke in parables. Remember, he used parables to, to veil the truth from some and to reveal the truth to others. But there are no parables here. Right? He is speaking as clearly as he can. He's trying to tell them and make them aware what is about to happen because this passage is extremely important. And it says he began to teach them about the Son of Man. All right, so pause there for a second because we haven't really encountered this term yet. Mark has been going to great lengths to show us that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. Right, but here we have this term, the Son of Man. <clears throat> and it's only been used twice so far in the book, back in chapter 2, and we kind of just skipped over it. But the title is a very important one. It's used 14 times in the Gospel of Mark, 12 of them in the second half of the book, starting here. And only Jesus uses this term, and only Jesus uses it to refer to himself. And it's important because it's a title that Jesus takes straight out of the Old Testament. Right? He, he takes this from Daniel chapter 7. Let me read you a few verses um, from Daniel chapter 7. <clears throat> Daniel's prophesying, and he, he, he writes, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Right? There's a lot of symbolism there, but that is clearly God. Right? That is, that is Yahweh. He is referred to as the Ancient of Days in that passage. But Daniel keeps writing. He says, And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came another like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him. 
And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So there are two figures in this passage. There is the Ancient of Days and there is the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is clearly the Messiah. And we don't have time to get into it in detail, but he's also clearly God himself. He shares in God's glory and God's deity. But notice what is said about the Son of Man. This is the type of the Messiah that the Jews were expecting. He is given glory and dominion and a kingdom that will not pass away and everyone will serve him. So, the disciples hear Jesus use this term, and they're probably thinking, yes, absolutely. We know what you're talking about. We know Daniel 7. We want those things. We want our conquering king who's going to come in and wipe out the Romans. Right? But look back at Mark and see what Jesus says about this son of man. He says that he must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Why? What? What? Don't, don't miss how, how big this is. Don't miss the gravity of this statement. This would be totally unexpected. The Jews would have had no category whatsoever for this. They would have had no concept of a suffering Messiah, which is evidenced by Peter's response. So Jesus says to them, yes, I am the Messiah, but I have not come to conquer. I have come to suffer. Right? And the big question that was probably flashing in their minds, the big question that you should be wondering is why? <laughs> why must the Messiah, God himself, God's chosen one, the Savior, him come in the flesh, why must he be rejected, suffer, and die? Have you ever asked that question? Right? Have, you ever, have you ever wondered about this? Well, the answer is it's quite simple. And the answer is sin. Right? And sin is a very biblical concept, though it is not a very popular concept these days. Even in many churches, sin is never um, spoken of. But Romans 3.23 says that all of us, says that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin, the penalty for sin is death. So the Bible says that all have sinned, we all deserve to die for it, and if you think about it, this actually makes perfect logical sense. I'm going to make my case here. First, you, you cannot deny the existence of sin. Right? Just read the newspaper. Just look at the world. Sin is out there. And if you're being honest with yourself, you cannot deny that you yourself have sinned. Right? We've all done things we regret. We've all done things that we feel guilty for. Every one of us has lied and cheated, gossiped and hated, ignored God's way and, and gone our own. So we all know that we have sinned, and if you think about it, it also then makes perfect sense that there must be a punishment for sin. Right? And that gets us to the answer of the, of the question, why did Jesus have to suffer and die? So you may be thinking, all right, sure, I'll grant you that. Maybe I'm a sinner. Okay, I, I see that. I understand that. But you know, God is merciful. He, he is love, right? Can't he just forgive me? Well, actually, no. He cannot. And, and this, is, this gets to what is referred to as the problem of forgiveness. Right? We, have, we have terribly cheapened the concept of forgiveness these days. Right? What happens? One of your kids hits another one of your kids. So you take them and you like physically force them together to hug. And you make one of them say, I'm sorry. And you force the other one to grudgingly say, I forgive you. And you're like, all right, we've, we've solved the problem. No, listen, that's not forgiveness. Right? 
The words, I forgive you, are not this kind of like magical incantation that just like fixes the problem and makes whatever happened go away. All right, I'll illustrate it like this. Think about it like this. <clears throat> Minzy and Elaine, they gave us a little TV, right? And, you know, it's got a good picture. It's nice. And I value it highly because on it I get to watch my Panthers dominate the football world. All right, so this thing is important to me. I like football. If you want a little taste of Carolina, Tonight at 8.30, one of the biggest games of the year. They'll be on NBC, so I, I recommend it. Um, but imagine if, if you came over to my house today. <clears throat> you know, Emma, Emma gets a little rowdy sometimes. You start horsing around with Emma, and you knock over my TV. Right? It hits the ground, and it shatters. It is, it is completely destroyed. Right? Well, what has happened? Well, a debt has been incurred. Right? You have broken something of mine that costs money to replace. And now I can't watch my football game, so I'm frustrated. But at this point, there are only two options of what can happen. Either you knocked it over, so you understandably, you feel bad, you apologize profusely, you say, you know what, this, this is my fault, you run out to the store, you run out, get me a TV, come back, and set it up for me. You, you buy the TV, and thus you have paid the debt yourself. You incurred a debt, you paid it yourself. Now, what's the other option? The other option is that I can forgive you. But what does that do? Well, you know, what, what happens if I forgive you for breaking my TV? Right? That doesn't make the debt go away. You see, the TV has still been destroyed. There is still a couple hundred dollar debt. But what is happening when I forgive you is that I am saying that I will take on your debt and I will pay it myself. I will play, replace the TV myself. You incurred a debt. I'm forgiving you and saying that I will pay that debt off in your place. And that's what forgiveness is. Right? Forgiveness isn't just a magical kind of waving a wand and things going away saying, I forgive you. No, forgiveness is the offended party choosing to not make the offending party pay the debt that they owe. It is them paying the debt for them. And it is the same thing with any sin. Right? If, I, if I tell a lie um, behind your back about you and you find out about it, you would rightly want justice. I have wronged you. A, a debt has been incurred. So you can either force me to pay that debt by being mad at me, by, by hanging it over my head, by punishing me and exacting that payment from me, or you can forgive me. And what you're doing when you forgive me is that you're not getting the payment you deserve. So you are, you are paying the debt for me. Right, in either case, someone suffers. Either I do for what I did, or you do for what you did and not getting the, the justice that you deserve. Listen, with forgiveness, suffering is always involved. Right? Someone always pays for every debt. Forgiveness is, is serious. Forgiveness is, is costly. And that is what Jesus is talking about here. That is why you must be rejected, suffer, and die. Because an unimaginable debt has been built up and someone has to pay that debt. So either we pay the debt that we earn for our sin or Jesus pays the debt for us. And again, the payment of a debt, forgiveness, always involves suffering. Yes, he is the Messiah. But he has not come to conquer. He has come to suffer. Right? He has come to suffer in our place and pay our debt. 
And that's what the disciples don't get yet. They get his identity, but they don't yet get the mission. And that's why Peter responds as he does there in verse 32. He, he rebukes Jesus. And that is a very strong word in the Greek. That's, that's the exact same word that Mark uses for what Jesus does to the demons. Rebuking, when, when Jesus silences them. Matthew 16, 22 tells us exactly what Peter said to Jesus. Peter said, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Peter is basically saying, suffering, death, no way, Lord. That is not going to happen to you. You're, you're the Messiah. You're the king. You're bringing the kingdom. There's got to be another way. Does that sound familiar at all? Does that kind of, does anyone picking up on, on where that's coming from? It should sound familiar because that is basically the exact same thing that Satan says to Jesus during his temptation. In Matthew 4, verse 9, he tempts him three times. The last temptation, remember Satan kind of takes him up onto this mountain and he basically somehow shows him the kingdoms of all the earth. And he says to him, all of these things I will give to you if you just fall down and worship me. What is Satan doing? Satan is offering Jesus another way. Satan is offering a way for Jesus to gain all these kingdoms and to gain the rule without the suffering and the death. He said there's another way apart from suffering and death. Peter is telling Jesus that there's got to be another way. And Jesus' response to Peter is the strongest we get anywhere in the Gospels. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus Christ calls Peter, who has just confessed him as the Messiah, who is his closest friend, the one through whom he was going to build the church, he calls him Satan because Peter was offering the same thing that Satan had offered two years earlier. But Jesus says to him, he says, no, you still don't get it. I have to suffer and die. It is the only way to pay the debt. If I don't suffer and die, your problem is not taken care of. The very reason that I came was to take care of that problem. So I must suffer and die. That's what Messiahship is all about. Suffering and dying in the place of sinners so that they could be forgiven. As a quick side note, have you noticed that, that all these guys on TV, right? All these, you know, these prosperity gospel preachers, all these, they basically teach the same thing that Peter is saying right here, right? Why do people listen to preachers who say the same thing that Peter does when Jesus calls him Satan? Peter says to Jesus, no, Lord, not the way of difficulty and suffering. You're the Messiah. You're the King. You're above that. Well, go watch TV and prosperity gospel preachers will tell you that you don't need to suffer. Nothing needs to be difficult. You don't ever need to be sick. There's no need to be poor. God has wants victory for you. He wants your best life now. He wants to give you all of these great material blessings. And Jesus would say the same thing to them. Get behind me, Satan. And I apologize. This is the last time I'll do this. I'm probably lying to you. But there's one important quote that, that I was reading through a book uh, in Joel Osteen's book, It's Your Time. And he writes this, and he says, our words have creative power. First of all, that's just not true. I don't know what that means. Our words have creative power. He says, announce, health is coming my way. I will live and not die. When you say of the Lord that you are healthy, that you are whole, that you are happy and free and blessed, and that you are financially prosperous, when God says it, God has promised that he has to do it. That is a lie. 
And that is a dangerous lie. Osteen says financial things. He says healthy, whole, free, blessed, easy, prosperous. Jesus says deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Do those messages sound similar? No, because they're not similar. Because they, they're the exact opposite message. It's not just like the gospel with a slight kind of different perspective on it. No, it's a completely different message. Jesus saves his strongest words in the gospel for when Peter opposes his mission of rejection, weakness, suffering, and death. And I imagine he would have similar words for any message that also rejects these things and tells us that God wants things to be easy and wealthy and happy. Right? That things never need to be difficult, that there doesn't need to be any hardship or suffering, right? that we don't need to do these things that Jesus tells us. Two very different messages. And it is extremely dangerous to teach or follow a message that is directly opposed to the message that Jesus himself taught. Right? So be careful who you listen to. Jesus says that he has come to suffer and die for sinners. And what Jesus does as the Messiah informs what we are to do as his disciples. Who he is and what he has done reflects what we are to do in response. That's why the messages about what we are supposed to do that have nothing to do with what he did are so problematic. The nature of his Messiahship determines the nature of our discipleship. And that's to what Jesus turns to next. Jesus, then, he calls the crowd to himself, right? That kind of indicates that what he is about to say is for everyone. It's not just for the disciples. And he basically says to them, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to, like, good come after, if you're going to follow me, he says, if you're going to say that you believe in me, here's what you have to do. He lists three things. He says, um, three pretty intense things. He doesn't just say, walk down an aisle or pray a magic prayer. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. First, he says, he says, deny yourself. All right, listen, to deny yourself is not to become a monk. Right? It doesn't mean go live in a cave and cut yourself off from all worldly pleasures or anything like that. Um, self-denial is not a denial of some particular thing to the self, but the denial of the self itself. It's not denying particular things, it's denying the actual self. Right? We don't satisfy the call to deny yourself by giving up chocolate for 40 days over Lent. Right? We, have, we have so devalued discipleship and self-denial that we think we accomplished something by not getting Starbucks for like a month out of the year. Right? No, that's not what self-denial is. No, denying yourself is fundamentally life-altering. It is not giving up a few things here and there. It is an entirely different lifestyle. It is an attitude of daily submission of your own will to God's will. It is giving up your claims and your rights and your desires, your way of living, and submitting to his way. I've mentioned the pastor before, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German guy back in the the 40s. He was killed by the Nazis um, for refusing to submit to what they're doing and for for plotting Hitler's assassination. He got strung up for it. We've seen his famous quote before from his book, The Cost of Discipleship. And he writes, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's what Jesus is talking about in this passage. But in that same book, Bonhoeffer did not de- defines self-denial for us. And he, he says this. He says, to deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. It's to be aware only of Christ and no more of ourselves. It is to see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. 
Once more, all that self-denial can say is, he leads the way, keep to him. It's like what we've talked about with, with the new birth. The new birth fundamentally alters our perspective. Right? It takes our focus from being completely on ourselves, right? and it sets it completely on Jesus. It's like we've been staring at ourselves in a mirror our entire lives, and then all of a sudden we're turned around and we now face our maker and our savior. Self-denial is forgetting yourself and remembering Christ. It is no longer what you want, but it is what he wants for you. Right? It is no longer marching to the beat of your own drum, but to the beat of his drum. It's not that terrible Christian bumper sticker that says, Jesus is my co-pilot. No, that's terrible theology. Right? It's like, I'm driving, I'm going this way. Maybe Jesus will help me out a little bit, I hope. Um, no, 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 that's, that's not it. Right? And that, that wouldn't be helpful, because Melissa is terrible with maps, so when I think of a co-pilot, I just get frustrated. And, you know, car trips, that's where we always fight, because I want to get somewhere in similar directions. You know, it's, you know, co-pilot, not a good image of God. I, instead, I think a better um, kind of picture is, I don't know anything about this song, I just know the title. This is cheesy Carrie Underwood song called Jesus Take the Wheel. I don't know anything about it, I don't know what the lyrics are, but that one line itself is actually pretty good theology, right? Because when we're driving a car, we're the ones in control. We've got the wheel, we determine when we stop, when we go, we determine the destination. Self-denial is taking our hands off of the wheel, climbing into the back seat, not being a backseat driver, and letting God choose the destination of our life, submitting to his will for us. Because you basically have two options for how to live. Right? Either you're in charge or God is in charge. Right? And Jesus says, if you want to live, you've got to deny yourself and give the control over to him. He is much smarter than you. He is much smarter than me. He knows what he is doing. So we are to deny ourselves and submit to him. And though every disciple is called to do this, it will look different for each one of us. So think about it. When we're talking self-denial. Listen, what we're not saying is, you know, you've got to go out and like seek out persecution or, or suffering. Listen, that's, that's not what we're talking about. Self-denial is going to look different in different situations, right? So not every one of us is going to have to live the life of the disciples by God's grace and be tortured and suffered and die for our faith. Most of us aren't going to have to experience that. But we all are without question called to, to self-denial. And what it will look like for you or for me is different than what it looked like for them. So think about this. For, for me, I, I tend to be kind of impatient, prideful, and desirous of comfort and ease. Right? Those are some of my real struggles. So in me, for me, denying myself involves, by God's grace, not demanding that everyone do things quickly and according to my schedule. It involves not getting frustrated when it takes Emma two hours to eat half of a grilled cheese. Like, I, I don't get it. Like, what is she doing in there? It just takes forever, right? So self-denial is giving up my desire to rather be doing something else than to, to serve my, my daughter there, right? It involves me working hard to have a biblical picture of my sin and my weakness. It involves recognizing that I'm not nearly as great, nearly as smart, or nearly as important as I think I am. It involves me sacrificing my desires to have lots of time to myself and to be free to watch all kinds of football and basketball and movies. So it means, for me, putting the needs of, of my wife and my daughter and this church ahead of my own needs. Right? That's what self-denial looks like for me. And I'm not saying I've mastered any of these things yet. But the first step is recognizing what those things are. Right? Do you at least know what denying yourself should look like for you? 
Are you striving to pursue that? Are you in charge or is God in charge? Are you trying to save yourself by your goodness and by your morality or does God save you? A, a person who denies himself, fundamentally, a person who den denies himself gives up all reliance on whatever he is by nature and depends solely on Christ for salvation, right? Basically, at, at its most uh, foundational level, self-denial is saying, I cannot do it. I cannot save myself. God, you've got to do it for me. I'm giving up all of these things that I use and try to justify myself and save myself and saying, I can't do it. You've got to do it for me. Right? To be a disciple of Jesus Christ requires that we deny ourselves. Right? But Jesus doesn't stop there. Next, he says we are to, to take up our cross. Again, this phrase doesn't quite carry the same weight today because to us, the cross is it's a symbol of great victory. Right? The cross is, is Christ's victory over Satan and over death. Not back then. Right? Back then, the cross... <clears throat> was a symbol of oppression of the Romans. The cross is how Rome, um, how they suppressed people and how they punished people. The cross was brutal and bloody. The cross symbolized defeat. They would have understood exactly what Jesus was saying here. So, so most of the time, as we see with Jesus, before you were crucified, just to make it worse, they would take the cross beam, they would put it on your back, and they would say, walk it to where you're going. Right? And so basically what you're doing is you're carrying the instrument of your death, to the place of your death. So Jesus has just told us that Messiahship involved his death, and now he is telling us that the discipleship, the discipleship will involve our death as well. Listen, first, our death to self, as we just saw with denying ourselves, right? but it also involves being ready to face physical suffering and death for our Savior. Matthew 10, 24 says that uh, Jesus says that a disciple is not above his teacher. And, and he fought, that's following his, his teaching that, that persecution will come. He's basically saying, if I was persecuted, suffered, and died, why should you expect anything different? Right? I'm going before you. I'm showing you the way. This is what it's going to be like. And again, listen, it was very physically and tangibly like that for the disciples. They literally, physically, suffered and died and poured out their blood. Right? Most of us are not going to be called to do that. But that doesn't mean there is not some sense of us taking up our cross and bearing and suffering shame and scorn and separation from the world, whatever that is going to entail. Right? Because the universal message of the New Testament is that some sort of suffering or persecution or difficulty will come. We're never told that things will be easy. We're never promised great material wealth um, or health and happiness. Just look at the disciples, right? right? Let, let them kind of be a pattern. And what's so fascinating about Paul is that in the midst of all of these difficulties and struggles, here was a man who said, but I find joy and strength in weakness, right? Difficulty does not mean sadness or, or, or sorrow, right? We can find great joy, and our joy comes from the fact that we have been reconciled and redeemed by Jesus Christ, right? So we are all called to deny ourselves, we are all called to take up our cross. And that leads into the, follow, the, the, the final one. Jesus says then that we are all called as well to follow him. Which just means do what I do. Listen to what I say. Obey. Right? There, is, there is no such thing as a disciple who doesn't do what his master says. Right? That just doesn't make sense. That's the very definition of what a disciple is. 
We are so quick to say that we believe in Jesus. Two-thirds or three-fourths of this country say that they believe in Jesus. But do our lives match that profession? Are we following him? Are we obeying him? Jesus says in John 14, 15, he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Are you doing that? Listen, he's not asking us to be perfect. I am sure not perfect, right? I, I struggle and fail and fall all the time, right? But, but are we making some sort of an effort to follow Jesus? Is there, is there failure and then repentance? That's the question. Is, is there repentance and a desire to grow in his grace? Are we listening to him and doing what he says? Or are there all of these areas in your life of consistent, repeated, unrepentant sin? Are you always angry? Are you sleeping around? Are you looking at pornography every day? Are you not paying taxes to the government? Whatever it is, is there some sort of consistent pattern of sin in your life that does not match your profession? Because as is clear from this passage, this is serious business. Right? This, is, this is eternity. Are you with Jesus or not? Because he is the one that determines our eternal destination. And Jesus calls us, says, if you're going to come after me, he says, take up your cross, um, deny yourself, and follow me. One author I was reading this week as I studied wrote this. He says, I believe I am not mistaken in saying that Christianity is a demanding and serious religion. When it is delivered as easy and amusing, it is another kind of religion altogether. Are we taking this seriously? Or is this just kind of some side thing that we do for an hour on Sunday morning? And Jesus, again, in the rest of our passage, makes it clear that this is serious stuff. Listen to verses 35 through 37. <clears throat> he says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? So here again we see that the wisdom of God runs counter to everything that we're used to. Right, this is another gospel paradox. Remember, a paradox is, is when there are two things that are both true, but that they seem to contradict each other. Jesus says, to save your life, you've got to lose it. He says, but if your goal is only to, to preserve your life, to gain or to fulfill your desires, then you're going to end up losing everything. To win, we must lose. To succeed, we must fail. To increase, we must decrease. To be victorious, we must surrender. To live, we must but this one's counter to everything that the world tells us. The world says, gain, grow, win, succeed, accomplish. It's about giving the most that you can, the most stuff, the most money, the most power, the most fame, the most pleasure. Every culture in the world points to various things and says that if you get those things, then your life will have meaning and value. I've been seeing some, some previews recently for a movie that's coming out. <clears throat> The movie is called the, the Wolf of Wall Street. I don't know anything about the movie. Um, I'm not recommending it at all. I know it's directed by Martin Scorsese, so it's going to be really rough. So, so I'm not saying this is a good movie to go see. But it's a true story. right? And it's a story about a man who, who swindled people on Wall Street back in the 90s for just millions upon millions of dollars. Well, this week I was reading a magazine and I was reading an article about the man that the movie is based on. You know, the real life true story. His name is Jordan Belfort, and he's actually from Queens, by the way, so woohoo, go Queens. Um, kind of one of the greatest swindlers in the last 20 years comes from us. Um, but Jordan Belfort is his name. He's a really sharp guy, 
Um, it's really articulate. Uh, this is a really interesting kind of story for a number of reasons. But, but at the height of this guy's success, he had everything. Everything that the world tells you, you need to have a good, meaningful life. He had limitless amounts of money, tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars. Multiple mansions around the world. Now, all these different yachts. He sank one of them. He had so much money, just kind of for fun. He had power and popularity. He had women throwing themselves at him. He had everything the world says should make us happy and healthy. Listen to what Belfort himself says in this interview. <clears throat> he says, I always felt that if I had more, then I'd feel good. But I think that the more I got, the worse I felt. We all have these holes, don't we? Right, listen, this guy is not a Christian. He is far from it. Later on in the article, he says this. He says, I thought if you got rich, you'd get the girls. Well, it's true. It worked for me really well. When I really hit it, I had all these gorgeous women throw themselves at me. But the problem with that stuff is that it doesn't really change you. He says, I had all this stuff, and it just made me feel worse. He said, I got all of these things, but all of this pleasure, and it never changed me. I just wanted more. And if you go and read about those who have, who have made it to the top, who have accomplished all the world says we need to accomplish, this is almost a universal sentiment, right? They work and they strive and they kill themselves to get and accomplish that which they so desire, that which they think will fulfill them, satisfy them, give their life meanings, and be enough, and it never is. They gain the whole world, and then they quickly realize that the whole world is not good enough. Because we were never designed to be fully satisfied by the things in the world. Listen, money, family, all these things, these are good things. Right? We should take, we should delight in them and use them and appreciate them. But we were never designed to be fulfilled and satisfied by those things. So Jesus says that if we keep looking to those things to satisfy ourselves, to save us, then we're going to lose everything. But if we give up those things to gain Christ, then we'll gain everything on top. Jim Elliott was a famous missionary way back in the 50s. He was a missionary to the, to the Warani people, a native tribe down in Ecuador. He was killed by the very people that he was trying to, to share the gospel, to, to share life with. He was, you know, he was brutally murdered um, for Christ. And he was a man willing to, to give his life for the sake of the gospel. And he wrote this, this very famous line now in his journal sometime before his death. <clears throat> he wrote, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. One more time. He says, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. And this is brilliant. Because if you start to think about it in those terms, then it almost becomes logical. It almost becomes common sense. We strive and we work and we kill ourselves to gain all of these things that we cannot keep and things which, as it turns out, never actually satisfy us. Right? It's the height of foolishness. So why not instead forget those things that cannot satisfy us, give up that which we can never keep to gain that which will satisfy us completely and that which we can never lose? Jesus says you can gain the whole world. You can be the most successful, powerful, comfortable, rich person in the world. Healthy, wealthy, and happy. But if you don't have him, you have nothing. But in the same way, he says that you can be the poorest, sickest, least comfortable, and least important person in the world. But if you have Jesus Christ, you have 
everything. Why are we so obsessed and concerned with gaining and getting all of these things um, that in a few short decades we're going to lose? Why do we worry and get so anxious about these things? Listen, what if eternity is real? What if this whole thing is correct? What if there is an eternity waiting for us after this? What if we really do live only about 70 short years and then millions upon millions of years after that? What if the only logical thing done then to do would be to, to live these short 70 years in light of the eternally longer period of time? Should we not then be so much more concerned with eternity than we are? This is what Jesus is talking about here. He says there is nothing that you can gain that is worth your soul. He says there is nothing that you can gain in this life that is worth an eternity of suffering separated from him. And that's why all these messages that focus on getting all of these things are just so misguided. They've missed the point. It's not about the things. It's about the Savior. It's about God himself, Jesus Christ. Because you can gain it all if you just got me. And if you think about it, aren't you really glad that these verses follow what we just talked about? Remember all of that denying and, and cross-bearing and, and suffering and denying, right? It doesn't sound very fun. It's kind of, kind of gloomy, right? But if that's just temporary, right, that, 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 that then makes the eternity worth it. That, that puts it in perspective. A, a few short decades in this life of whatever varying degree um, that we all go through, a few short decades to gain eternity. Paul puts it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And this is the man who, who understood and was, and was familiar with suffering. He says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're passing away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Do you get that? Right? Are you living this life in light of the life to come? Right? Are you looking at things in this life from the perspective of eternity? Because Jesus is he's giving us the warning. Don't be fools. Don't give up eternity just to gain a little passing pleasure in the here and now. Yes, following me sometimes will be hard. Yes, it will cost you some in this life. But it is so worth it in the life to come. There is so much joy in relationship with me, even when there is difficulty and suffering. It is, it is the only way to, to be with him. It is the only way to succeed in the life to come. It's either his way or it's our way. It's either kind of a little bit of maybe suffering and discomforting now or an eternity of unbearable suffering later. So he's just basically saying, which is it going to be? Right, so, so that's the passage, and it is, it is understandably, it, it's a heavy one, but it's an extremely important one. Right? These are Jesus' words. He is, he is making sure and telling us plainly what it means for him to be the Messiah and what he has come to do. And it is that that informs then what we are called to do in response as, as his disciples. The nature of Messiahship determines the nature of discipleship. Who he is and what he has done determines who we are and what we are to do in response. He initiates and we respond. Listen, just to make sure you don't hear me wrong. 
Um, we can never play our part until he plays his part first. Right? You can't just go out there and be like, all right, I'm going to start denying myself. I'm going to um, find some suffering or something, and I'm going to take up a cross. Um, no, it doesn't work like that. Listen, we cannot save ourselves by doing any of these things. God saves us by his grace, by, by doing a work in our heart, by, by bringing our dead hearts back to life, by grace. It is him changing us and then us being able to rightly respond by following him. Right, Jesus has come to suffer, die, and be rejected in the place of sinners, in the place of us. Right? And if we're going to follow him, he says, he tells us right here, he says to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. Right? It all sounds, you know, fairly gloomy. But just look back up at verse 31 for a second. Right? We, we skipped over this last little part. Jesus kind of just throws this in there in passing without explaining it. He says he's going to be killed. Then it says, and after three days, he's going to rise again. Right? And that changes everything. That, that fundamentally alters the tenor of the passage. Yes, this is serious, weighty stuff. Yes, there, there may be some sort of difficulty. Um, but then there is resurrection. Right? Resurrection swallows all of that up and makes it worth it. He's not going to just die, but he's going to rise as well. In, in submitting himself to death, he will utterly defeat it and free us from its clutches. There's a happy ending to the story. It's not needless suffering and death for no purpose, but meaningful suffering and death for a very specific purpose, forgiveness and restoration. He, he dies to free us, and then he comes back to life to finally defeat sin and death. That's what 2 Corinthians 4 is about. This is all, whatever we have to go through, different degrees, your life, my life, the, the disciples' life, whatever we have to go through, Paul says it's all light and momentary. But the result is eternal and glorious. The resurrection changes everything. Jesus Christ has, has come back to, um, from the grave and he is alive today. Yes, he suffered and died. Yes, he, he calls us to, to follow him. But the result, the reward is so unimaginably great that whatever we have to go through here, no matter how much it is, it will all be worth it when we get to Revelation 21.4, which says he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That's what's coming. Right? For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Nothing. Do you believe that? Right? And Christ says, to, to deny yourself, to take up your cross, and to follow him. And let's, let's close in prayer. <clears throat> Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for sending us exactly what we needed. We thank you for sending one to come in and do what we could not do ourselves. Father, we do not have the worth or the value to, to pay the eternal debt um, that we owe. We can only pay it um, in eternity, in hell, separated from you. But Father, we thank you that there's another way. We thank you that that other way is the, is the suffering and the death of Jesus Christ in our place. Something that we could never do for ourselves. Father, we thank you for, for submitting your son um, to, to evil and sickness and death um, for us, Father, the, the greatest act of love. Father, I pray that we will, 
we would just be changed by that love. We would see that and just be caught up in it and be enraptured by what you have done for us. Father, and then out of the gratitude and the joy for what you have done for us and in our hearts, Father, that we would desire and long to, to follow Jesus, to, to live in a way that honors him, to, to go into the world with his message and to love others and to, and to share the gospel with him. Father, we confess our sin. Uh, we confess our tendency um, to want things um, as easy as possible. We confess our tendency to, to shy away uh, from anything difficulty. I confess my um, tendency to do those things. But Father, show me the value of what Jesus Christ did for me. Show me how eternally glorious um, that was. Father, give us a, a, an eternal perspective so that we will, we will see this life um, in light of, of the life to come. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your great plan of salvation um, through the life, death, and, and resurrection of Jesus um, for sinners. Father, we love you um, and we thank you. And it's in the name of your son that we pray. Amen. Amen.